of the Greenlight Podcast, which is a collaboration between Glow West and Active Consent. And both Glow West and Active Consent work to build a consent culture in Ireland through the use of podcasts, workshops, dramas and e-learning modules and even more. The Greenlight Podcast will explore how consent, sexual violence and relationships are depicted in and shaped by pop culture from Hollywood to music to TV shows. And we are three hosts here together. So my name is Dr. Caroline West. I'm joined by Dr. Charlotte McIver and Alex Black. And we will be joined by some very special guests throughout the course of the podcast to dissect these topics and look at how we can create a better world for everybody to explore consent and positive sexual experiences. So I am Caroline. Some of you might know me from Glow West, where we talk about sex and sexuality, and we're focusing even stricter on consent and pop culture on this podcast. Um, Charlotte, say hello to everyone. Let the world hear your awesomeness. Hello, it's great to be here, Caroline. I have been nerding out on pop culture, sexuality, and gender basically since as soon as I could watch a television or pick up a book. So I'm delighted to have achieved my lifelong dream and be here with you beautiful women today. <laughs> that is like a really good use for all those hours of TV that you think you're just wasting a day, but no, you're doing research. <laughs> that, that, that works. That's kind of awesome. And our social media queen, Alex Black, how are you? Hey, yes, the social media queen of active consent, uh, official title also, creative content producer and campaign lead. And yeah, just huge pop culture nerd and knee deep in TikTok and everything. I like so. how you had to clarify your t- your actual work title was on social media queen, but like it should be. I know, I wish it was. It should be. Yeah. But sure, we can work on that. Yeah, maybe next year. Maybe next year yeah. we'll get to that. So first off, like we're going to have a, a brief kind of look tr- at this episode on like some of the moments that we kind of particularly resonated with um, in music and TV and any other kind of moments. But first, I suppose, in case you're wondering what on earth is active consent, Charlotte, would you give us just a brief outline? of the kind of philosophy that active consent embodies in creating a consent culture in Ireland. We're a national program based at NUI Galway. We collect Irish data on how young people feel about gender, sexuality, their experiences, about positive sexuality and sexual violence. We believe that you need to focus on the positive. What can we do? How can we improve people's understanding of consent, learning from their lived experiences in order to create resources of all different types to continue a dialogue and to stay in touch with the dialogue because this is an area that is always gonna be changing and developing and we need to meet people where they're at and in a positive way. I think, yeah, isn't that really important? Because a lot of sex ed in school can be very negative of don't do this, don't do that. and. I don't think that really works quite so well. No. No, I think, yeah, definitely not. And Alex, then if you, as social media queen, your official job title, hopefully going forward, um, how do we use social media to to spread that positive sexual message while not getting booted off um, social media for having, um, yeah, this kind of content? God, completely. Like, how do you talk about sex while not being allowed to really talk about sex on Instagram in particular with like such strict guidelines is a very fun tightrope to walk every day. So one thing is that I know we hear a lot about the negative aspects of social media. And of course, I'm not saying that there aren't some maybe negative side effects to all the social media use. My own screen time has gone up to maybe eight hours during the pandemic a day. So I'd be hypocritical if I didn't say it didn't have some sort of negative effects. But I think at the same time, there's so much wonderful things that social media can do. 
And one amazing thing that it can do, especially if you're using it right, is that it really democratizes kind of information. Because as we've said, we can't always rely on the fact that young people are getting good sex education in school. So where are they going to get that information? And I love this really amazing quote from there's this great Instagram account called Sex Positive Families. And they had a post that said, you need to be as accessible to young people as online porn is if you're going to be like trying to give them good information about sex, about consent and all those things. So that's the wonderful thing about social media is that you could open up your phone and if you follow active consent in particular or any other of the many great sex education accounts out there, you can see lots of fantastic information totally for free on your timeline along with pictures of cats. So I mean, what's not good about that? Yeah, Yeah. cats and sex and consent, like happy days. Um, Charlotte, we have a bunch of other resources on that accessibility piece, I mean, one of the things that we know from our research and our experience doing workshops over years is that when you sit down with young people and ask them to define consent, they can define consent as something that is ongoing, mutual, freely given, mutually negotiated, pleasurable, etc. However, when you actually start having conversations about real life situations, what happens between two people in a closed room, those nuances are where things start getting more complicated. So we have to accept that. We have to meet people where they're at, whether on social media, and I think or elsewhere, but also like be in dialogue with what what they're in dialogue with every day. And this is why I'm so passionate about the the move towards us discussing pop culture so overtly, right? Because we talk a lot about the sex education classroom, we need to change it, we need to radicalize it. But also, you know, not only does social media need to be as accessible as online porn, we need to be meeting people in those pop culture moments, because that's actually maybe where they're doing the most important learning that they don't know that they're doing the learning in that moment. Because on top of that, Caroline, you always cite this in your workshops, and I never remember exactly what it is, but it's that, I think it's, is it Irish people maybe only spend about 10 minutes a day, if that much, watching porn? Is that it? Yeah, it's some Pornhub sets are something like nine minutes and 17 seconds or something, basically enough time to log on and do particular things and then log back off again. Yeah, like log on, do your business, log off, but (laughs) what about the other... 23 hours and 50 odd minutes of the day where you're watching tv you're watching netflix you're watching films you're on tiktok you're on social media you're listening to podcasts all these sorts of things and all this other sort of media that we're consuming and it's not to say that people don't think that's important or something but i think especially when we're talking about consent and sexuality and sexual scripts porn always tends to be the villain well it's like Mm. but what about everything else we're looking at what about all the other messages we're picking up and why are we not scrutinizing them as much yeah, that's a, it's really important to to look at all those aspects because yeah, like I'm on Instagram far too often every day, but I also watch Netflix and TV and movies and listen to songs and like I think everyone remembers how awful Blurred Lines was as a song, but you know it's really important to be able to talk about this. So we do talk about that in some of our resources and Charlotte, you have a, a, an outline of what we have because we have quite a good few resources now at this stage. So happy days. So where do we? Start. We have an online workshop or hopefully face-to-face COVID depending. We have an e-learning module that we created that looks specifically at sexual violence, harassment, and beginning to walk people through what it means to step up as a bystander in terms of, of noticing if something 
wrong dangers is going on and how to step in and begin to intervene. So we have that. We are going to be releasing a new theatrical film based on our play, which toured Ireland in 2019, 2020, later this year. And on this new hub, which launches the same month as this podcast, uh, more or less simultaneously, we also have a new expanded list of frequently asked questions, kind of everything you'd ever wanted to know about consent, but didn't quite know how to ask. And it's intended, there's a big list for a general audience, but then for more specific perspectives, like under 17, over 17, parents or caregivers, educators. So again, it's like, okay, what do people tell us they need to know? How can we give it to people in bite-sized pieces? Yeah, so at the time of this podcast, I believe that it will take its maiden voyage into the world. You can go to consenthub.ie and find out everything you want to know about active consent, like what we're about, all the services we offer, um, everything about our e-learning modules, upcoming information, FAQs, all those wonderful sorts of things. So consenthub.ie, if you want to, want to find out more about active consent, that is where you go uh, in, in partnership with the Department of Justice. Fantastic. So one stop shop for all your consent needs. So which is fantastic to, to see in, in this day and age. So let's get let's dive into pop culture stuff, because, again, there's so many different examples of really good stuff, but also really terrible songs or TV shows as well. So we, not, we like to kind of discuss both of them as well. Um, if we start with music. One of the songs that I love that's like really sex positive and also kind of nice and filthy is well is ariana grande's 34 plus 35 so you know if you add those numbers up you can kind of guess what the song is about but it's really lovely in that like she has like this lovely sense of consent and she's like oh i'm waiting for you to come over i'm i'm prepped and ready to go and i've been looking forward to this and it's just this lovely kind of non-shaming really nice sex positive song where it's like i want to do this thing and i want to do it with you and hurry up and come over and let's get her freak on and whatever I think it's just really lovely and positive and nice and filthy as well at the same time <laughs> so that's a good combination I think it's fantastic and one thing I've been because I actually so way back when I was doing I did my postgrad in like sex education which brought me to active consent which is also how I met you Caroline for the first time <laughs> all and the way back in the cave stone all age the way days. back when we were allowed to breathe my masks on. Um, so I remember I looked at for an assignment I had I looked at the evolution actually of Ariana Grande's kind of career and how she's expressed her sexuality and it's so interesting to look at yeah 34 plus 35 as an example that is so explicit and even in the end she just goes it means I want a 69 years yeah. in case there was any, any worry that it wasn't clear enough what she was talking about she's not doing but, maths lessons exactly <laughs> no it's very much past maths with Ariana Grande <laughs> But it's been so interesting because at the beginning, her whole sexuality and her whole kind of thing was a lot more, it was like, it was, it was like dangerous woman. And her whole thing was like, oh, this is dangerous and sexy and illicit and don't tell anybody. And that was a lot of the messaging in a lot of her songs. And like, so dangerous woman, I can't think of any at the top of my head, but even like once the weekend, it was always, that was the vibe. Her God is a woman as well. That was like, when I'm done with you, you're going to believe God is a woman. And you're like, yes, girl. There's there's been a complete 180 where she's gone from dangerous woman to God is a woman. So before she was like, this is illicit and we need to hide it. And now she's singing quite openly about 69ing and God is a woman. And it was funny because in very early songs, you'll see she might've gotten like Nicki Minaj on the track. 
to do the slightly more explicit stuff and be like, okay, she can handle the more explicit stuff. But now she's doing it herself. And yeah. I'm kind of she doesn't need to outsource it anymore. So. Exactly. She's yeah. a married woman. She knows what she wants. She doesn't need to worry about looking like, oh, is she a good role model? Like she's just going for it. And I'm quite, I'm, I'm proud of Ariana and where she's come. We will, we will stand Ariana all day long. Charlotte, what about you? What are your, your awesome pop songs about consent and not so awesome pop songs about consent? Well, I'm going to kick it a little bit old school for a minute and not not entirely unproblematic, but I want to give a shout out to Christina Aguilera and Little Kim's Can't Hold Us Down. I yes. can remember- The blueprint for Ariana Grande and Nicki Minaj. <laughs> right? I can remember being driving around in a car in Northeast Philadelphia with my friends, listening to the song. And there's this brilliant lyric that um, Little Kim has about, you know, a guy can give you head or sex or more, but a girl does the same and you call her a whore. And I remember just yelling. And the first time that like, I felt like that idea or sentiment was articulated so clearly, right? And we have to remember as well that at the time there was like Christina and Brittany and like, how are they gonna negotiate those images? Or, you know, Christina then kind of took this turn where she was kind of very much, I suppose, slut shamed. And, you know, Brittany is a whole other conversation as well. But I remember really like, believing Christina as the underdog who's like taking these risks and, and being a little bit edgier which is like a binary neither of them deserved but like it really mattered to like see that turn and hear those words at that moment I can mm. still remember them obviously yeah well like if you fast forward I don't know how many years that is my maths are appalling 20 odd years you have DJ Khaled saying real men don't go down on women and you're like uh, excuse me yeah that's like shocking. that is not okay so oh. no yeah. and Nicki Minaj one thing I, I will I know she's had her moments but I will I will live and die for Nicki Minaj but like whenever that came out she was just like absolutely not she just completely roasted him because she because he just came out saying no I don't go down on women I was like DJ Khaled please your poor wife he's married like yeah you just think DJ Khaled's poor wife and the life that she's led with that this ain't man. good it ain't good it ain't good one that was like really sex positive and probably like like it was basically like porn to me growing up was the song LL Cool J um, doing it. Like that was so filthy and so explicit. And it was like the only thing I had access to. Like, so it was fantastic. But also it talks about safe sex as well. She's like, oh, have you got a rubber? And he's like, damn right. And it's like, yes, like filthy sex. That's fantastic. And also it's safer sex as well. But that's fab. But it's literally like both of them just going oh, we're going to have like amazing sex tonight and they're both hyping each other up and themselves up and it's going to be this fantastic experience. And it's like, oh, it's not just lovely. It's you people having a very pleasant time together and it's all lovely and consensual. And like, yes, like that's really sex positive and he doesn't call her a bitch or anything in it. So it's very nice. And speaking of, you know, that era and the love of the condom, we'd be remiss not to mention Salt and Pepper, Salt and Pepper and their music. I remember closing myself in a friend's bedroom with them listening to the songs on tape. It was the first time that I heard women speak that openly about sex, about desire, that call and response, birth control, which is like a Catholic girl in Northeast Philly you weren't learning about. So that, you know, felt so revolutionary and still is, I think. Absolutely was. So yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, on the flip side then, what are the bad examples of sex? So Alex is like straight in there, like sex and bad sex and songs and consent where are we going yeah so I remember when we started talking 
about what we wanted to talk about today and like, oh, let's look back at our own formative experiences of like where we learned about consent and stuff and how, you know, these are so important because it's baggage we really take throughout the rest of our lives. And one thing I thought of, I was like, music, nothing's really clicking to me. And then I completely realized like I was deep in emo. I was deeply emo. If you saw Alex Black in 20. 2006 maybe it was like the double studded belt the emo fringe the full the full shebang and looking back on a lot of emo music it was so atrocious so this is like I wouldn't have maybe even heard the word consent maybe till like after college but when I think about the messages that I was funneling into my ears for maybe like 10 hours a day because if you remember back when the very earliest mp3 players and the music you might have had in your phone you might have had five songs that you could have fit on your phone it's not like now oh my where god you alex you make us feel like a million years old i but know okay. but this is the thing like because you would just listen to the same songs all no, over and over again because maybe you could fit 200 songs on your mp3 player so these were really going in just constantly and i've actually made a list of some of the worst emo lyrics if, if you would like to hear them i would like to hear them and I, i'm so, sure i will be very angry after i hear them <laughs> so keep in mind i mean a lot of so basically emo was very male dominated Haley williams from paramore was pretty much carrying all the female representation on her back while also being kind of problematic herself so we were getting very few female voices and then a lot of the it was just a lot of like suburban white guys that were allowed to emote but usually it was just them giving out about girls that didn't like them back so I picked out some of the worst lyrics and some of them aren't even a lot of them are like it's fallout boy it's panic of the disco a lot of people that are still really successful today so there's one example in so taking back Sunday has anyone heard about them Mm-mm. so taking back Sunday one of their probably most well-known songs is called make damn sure and just a little quote from that goes, I want to break you down so badly in the worst way. I'm going to make damn sure that you can't ever leave. No, you won't ever get too far from me. Uh, yikes. Real weird and creepy, obviously. So that's kicking us off. And um, we've got, uh, there's this awful band. So there's this song called The Curse of Curves. And it's by this band called Cute Is What We Aim For. There was a lot of real long song titles, a lot of real long band names. I, I think goes, they're not going to achieve their goal of being cute. Just, probably not yeah. no and it goes her bone structure screams touch her touch her and she's got the curse of curves it's so cringy what? but another thing about emo is that and you see this in misery business which everyone knows the biggest like emo anthem ever with the line that goes she's got a body like an hourglass it's ticking like a clock so basically if you were kind of overtly feminine in any way or the fact that it's like curves are very much equated with like female like sensuality but in a way that's quite you're villainized basically because everyone wanted to be real skinny real tomboyish looking real androgynous so anything with even slightly more femme figure it was like oh my god you're a slut that was essentially the vibe and then yeah a great example like misery business where she's got that awful lot they don't actually paramore has stopped singing misery business as of i think 2018 so we'll put that out there for Haley williams but up until 2018, they were singing, uh, once a whore, you're nothing more. I'm sorry, that'll never change. So imagine hearing Yikes. that at maybe 15. That's that's pretty gross. What's your thoughts on that, Charlotte? Well, as a couple of years younger than Alex, I came of age in the heyday of Nirvana, of Nine Inch Nails, of Marilyn Manson. And I remember spending, like, there's a first, like, the feeling that some of the songs gave me that I didn't quite know how to describe. There was, of course, Nirvana's Rape Me, which, like, try explaining to your female peers and male peers throughout high school why that song might be problematic or complicated, especially after Kurt Cobain's death, because then you couldn't critique the man, right? And then closer, 
right? Uh, by Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, you know, um, you let me violate you. Um, you can have my isolation. You can have the hate that it brings, right? But yet the song was also incredibly sexy and driving in its sexiness, right? So confusing, I suppose, in terms of the, of the feelings or emotions that it brought up. And like Marilyn Manson, there was always, I mean, so much about him, I'm sad to say that we now know that 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 feeling or that impulse or the kind of imagery there definitely was not just a pose or not just an act. But I suppose I'll slip in a positive shout out that the counteract to that then during that time for me was Tori Amos and this like unabashed, open, joyful sexuality, this like really intense feminine that almost like trying to push back for me against that 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 darkness. But I found it really hard to talk to my peers about it. And I can still like, get this feeling in this pit of my stomach when I think about some of those songs or listening to them in groups of people. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And we will have a specific episode on music itself because there's so much, like it's not just song lyrics. It's like performers like Marla Manson who, you know, like we'll discuss about being cancelled or, you know, like the music of Or Kelly where he, he was allowed to be basically a known predator for like, like 20 years or something like so we will we will kind of dive into those and Alex I know like this is you're you're our music queen as well as our social media queen you want to come in there well just yeah because as Charlotte was saying often and I mean this isn't specific to one genre this is across I mean if me too told us anything there's predators in every corner of the world no matter what business you're in or whatever field you're in or anything like that but you just see it across all genres. So like, yeah, we've got Ori Kelly, but we've also got like, just to com come back to emo for five minutes, but to see the lyrics don't come out of nowhere and they don't exist in a vacuum because at the same time, something that was so normalized. And I think this isn't just in like, was in like emo pop punk scene, but also just in the alternative and rock kind of scenes way back till, you know, the seventies and sixties and the groupies and all that sort of thing. And Elvis is that these like huge age gap relationships where male performers would kind of prey on their female fans. And there's so many pop punk and emo front men that have now are now dealing with allegations against them that they preyed on young female fans in particular. And it's just the fact that you know that the the lyrics that are there and the lyrics that do exist, you're like, oh, well, you know, it's all for entertainment or like, you know, with so much emo and pop punk music, there was as much self-hatred as there was searing resentment <laughs> towards women. But at the same time, you see the reality plays out that even I know, like whenever I was growing up, it was very normal for younger girls and older guys to be together. No one really questioned it. And looking back now, you're like, what in God's name were we letting happen? And why was that so okay? But even like with Eminem, like his, like we all knew how much he hated his ex-wife, like, and he still <laughs> won awards for rapping about murdering her and everything else. But yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that in that episode because I think, yeah, it's important to look at like, oh, you know, there is the cultural aspect behind this as well. Like you said, they don't come completely out of nowhere. Um, and another area which we'll come back to a lot on the on this podcast is the area of TV, because I think we all watch a lot of TV, especially over the past two years of a pandemic. Um, for me, one of the, I suppose, the more overt moments of sex and consent on screen would have happened a lot in Sex in the City. And now that we are having Sex in the City mark two if we don't count the two movies and we don't count the second movie because that was really really bad um I, I think like 
they didn't really like for such a like a really great empowered show in many ways like they spoke about very progressive issues but you know I still remember that episode where Carrie sat there and this guy was showing her all the videos he took of um supermodels that he had sex with and he like they didn't know so obviously they didn't ask for consent or anything like that and she was just like I'll just pull up a chair next to you and watch all these videos of these women that don't know that their image is out there and now like we finally have the language we um, you would never like the new sex and city would not show that but like now we would name that actually as like hey that's image-based abuse it's not okay to record people without their knowledge during sex but the fact that we that was just viewed as like this sexy moment is uh quite problematic and I feel like Charlotte you um as as a namesake Charlotte and and Carrie we're all like represented in the new one um I feel like yeah we'd never get away with that in the new woke series would we no and it's funny thinking back and trying to locate where consent as a kind of idea or a conversation even happened in Sex and the City. Like, I think, you know, it's like Samantha was so enthusiastic in consent, perhaps Samantha coined the idea, right? You know, she was always kind of up for sex. That was such a core part of of her character, that exploration. But like the rest of them, consent was about whether somebody wanted to be in a relationship with you or you wanted to be in a relationship with them. You did want to have sex. Sometimes sex was good. Sometimes sex was bad. It was not even a concept that existed. So there was a recent episode on just like that, where there's a moment where Miranda, a sexual partner with Miranda, you know, asks, you know, are you okay with this? And I nearly fell out of my seat thinking about us, but then also thinking, yeah, there were never those negotiations on that show. Yet I would identify that show as one of the most important moments in my life where women were in public talking about sex and I saw a future in it for myself. <laughs> it's a good thing. Well, even on the Samantha stuff, like you would often see her doing like really graphic stuff. Like Samantha got like the brunt work of showing sex on the screen but you did you missed that kind of lead up a lot of the time of the emotional side of like you know are we consenting to this what you want to do it was just like that guy's hot boom here's like graphic sex on your screen and it's like mm, you missed a few steps there Alex what do you think of that the one thing one thing that stood out to me actually because I haven't watched the new series oh my god get out get out I know I need to but because you know sex in the city as much as it was a hot mess there was a lot of it in the original series that would still even be a little bit not taboo but it would still ruffle some feathers to talk about today or still might be a bit controversial to talk about today or things that we're still not really used to talking about there's one great episode and I think it's maybe in the first season as well where they um Miranda seeing a guy who wants to um he wants to explore rimming with her and they all get into the taxi together and there's like, what are we going to do? How are we going to approach this? And there's a great quote from Samantha where she goes, there's something happening with guys on the ass. And even for now, that could be a little bit, a lot of people might not know how to handle that conversation now. And they were still handling it kind of in the 90s. Maybe they didn't do a great job of it. But then we see the scene and how it plays out. And basically he's kind of just, he's going down on her, but he's kind of inching closer and closer and she just goes, I don't want to do that. And that's how that's how the consent is played out. At no point is he like, I'd like to do this. Are you interested? He just kind of, it's that kind of, you know, what we what we would talk about and call passive consent, where it's like, well, I'll try it. And if they don't stop me, that must be yes. Which we obviously know from our workshops and everything that we try and really ingrain into young people. No, that's not how you should be approaching something because your partner might just be too freaked out, not know how to say no. 
And then, yeah, you have Miranda just going, I don't want to do that. I'm clearly kind of stressed by it. I think that's really lovely. And I know like you are a slight obsessive about um, the show Sex Education because I think, you know, and you have examples of where they they really do talk about consent. It's not passive. It's not like, oh, we'll just keep going until we don't like they actually ask for it and talk about consent so tell us about that for those who still haven't watched sex education which is a fantastic show completely so if you haven't watched sex education i don't know what you've been doing especially in lockdown when we have nothing else to do but there's some really wonderful moments from it and how it's um talked about the idea of consent without without ever turning it into an after school special one example that kind of sticks out so this will be full of spoilers also. So Maeve and Otis, or not Maeve and Otis, Otis and Ruby. So Ruby's like the popular girl. Otis, he's not weird, but he's maybe not as, he doesn't have quite the same clout that uh, Ruby has. And they kind of, end, they end up having sex by some in, insane divine intervention. And it turns out that it was Otis's first time. He didn't think he'd be having sex with Ruby and it's, it kind of was all a bit of a fumble, but he one thing he did is that he he just kept saying is this okay is this okay and he kept checking in and ruby kind of says like oh you didn't have to ask that many times or something like that she's a bit like that was so awkward he was like oh well it's good to check in and then she says thank you for checking in a lot of guys don't so it's still quite nice that even it was so awkward he was so concerned about whether she was having a good time yeah another yeah and another really amazing way that they do it is that so there's um an episode where Maeve and Isaac, uh, so there are two, two other characters, this is in, I think, season three, um, where they're um, getting with each other for the first time, but Isaac's in a wheelchair, and that kind of changes how he can have sex. I'm not sure, I think, he, I can't remember if he can't have penetrative sex at all, or if he just can't feel it because of his uh, disability. So instead, they have this, it's this gorgeous scene where they're just navigating touch and pleasure without penetration, and it's so nice to imagine when we take penetration out of the equation, like it suddenly actually just becomes an exploration of pleasure. And they're checking in the whole way through being like, does this feel good? What's this like? He's like, I really like when people do this. And it's so beautiful. And it's just such a gorgeous scene. I love it. More of that, please. And I'm sure Charlotte, you have many, many examples as well of TV. Well, actually, I want to give a shout out to one of my my favorite couple on sex education, Lily and Ola. I love the development of their relationship. I love how, you know, Ola also dated Otis. It seems that everyone dated Otis on the show. For the Um, nerdy boy, he really gets around. He really does. Um, But then Ola falls for Lily and kink is a big part of of their relationship in terms of lots of alien sex play. But not only that, Lily has vaginus and they have to negotiate that medical condition and how to play together. And then also changing desires in relationship to fantasies and kink. And you see them negotiate through all those different stages but like pleasure is never out of the picture there and I just every time I watch that show I'm like oh my if I had this 20 years ago like where would I be today you know it's incredible I also want to give a shout out to girls actually you know I think that there are some parts I mean that show never hit me in the heart in the way that Sex and City did or Sex Education does But I think the way in which it introduced um, discussions around consent and, um, you know, the so-called gray areas of consent within relationships, even though a lot of the events that were depicted, particularly with the character Adam and his girlfriend Natalia, were non-consensual. And, you know, in terms of him, him giving her a nerve 
a verbal no and him continuing with an act of, of oral sex and masturbation. Um, I think there's another episode as well where he continues and, and penetrates after being told no. You know, the show in some ways was a bit cute about it in the sense that they're like, well, was that really rape? I'm not sure. And by they, I mean the way that Lena Dunham talked about it at the time. But yet I think they were kind of zeroing in on those moments of nuance in a way that Sex, that sex in the City didn't. Um, so I think there were some missed opportunities there. But then again, in Linda Dunham's autobiography, she talks really brilliantly about her own experiences of sexual assault and sexual violence. But looking back, that was a moment where I was like, okay, TV is catching up with activism in a sense, or like the, the nuance of the discussion. Well, I think on, on that note, it's almost like leads really into like, the future of of depicting sexual assault on tv which well i would like it to be the future is um i may destroy you from michaela Cohn, who's who's really taken that because what she's done is right from the heart and depict sexual assault of which she's been open about being a victim of as well but i think it's really interesting because she the way she's crafted that show um is really really different it's not looking for revenge as such we see that that narrative and not like look at kill bill like uma thurman is assaulted when she's in a coma and she takes revenge and murders the guy and you know uh, that that narrative is always there like revenge and then you're a good person if you get revenge because therefore you have vindicated yourself and saved your reputation whereas i think in i may destroy you it's a nice kind of softer approach and it's looking more uh healing like Uma Thurman got revenge as Kill Bill but did she heal you know um we kind of have to look at that too um and there hasn't been that narrative it's like oh just murder someone and then you'll be grand like and it's I really like I May Destroy You where it looks kind of at that compassion and gentleness and healing and um not setting the world on fire and, and and just dealing with it in different ways and I think it's really nice just to have a different approach to this kind of narrative Alex yeah because this is actually something we talked a bit about on our Instagram so one thing that we love doing on Instagram is doing these deep dives into tv shows or films or anything that we think people are watching and being like what did you think of usually ones that have you know themes of sex and consent in particular and we talked about Promising Young Woman which is such a fantastic film but is a rape revenge film but it's kind of a deviation from that which is a whole genre of film for anyone that's not aware it kind of one of the most notable examples is quite a kind of graphic horror film called I Spit on Your Grave but it, it fits into this whole rape revenge narrative and like a woman is brutal it's typically a woman that's brutalized and then she goes and exacts revenge on her um attackers so much like in Kill Bill and it kind of brought up the whole discussion around rape revenge films again because one thing I kind of saw a lot of people talking about is that yeah it doesn't focus on actually the kind of mundane day-to-day aftermath of healing from assault and healing from trauma and how that can actually be a kind of mundane process and it's not all Quentin Tarantino badass girl gonna go get her girl boss revenge and it's actually quite complex and nuanced but one really amazing thing that they do in Promising Young Woman is that it's kind of well it's a friend first of all so we've got Carrie Mulligan as a friend kind of avenging avenging her friend but it's more that it was it happened in college and then her friend kind of just she had to drop out of college because of the trauma of what happened and she just she just didn't reach her full potential and that's where you get promising young woman and it's kind of a play on the idea of oh the attacker was such a promising young man and his life is going to be derailed by these allegations but it looks a little bit more into kind of then how Cassie so the main character 
almost how her life has been derailed by this trauma as well, even though she was just helping someone that was close to her who had been assaulted, but how her life has now kind of become completely about this trauma. And it did bring up the whole discussion about some, like as amazing as these films are, do they then kind of, do they reduce someone's life to an entire moment that happened to them and a trauma that happened to them? And how can we actually imagine a much brighter future for people that have experienced that kind of trauma? Very good questions to ask and which we will be exploring time and time again on this podcast for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Really important. And what, what about you, Charlotte? Any other TV shows that, that you think did a good or a bad job of depicting consent and all the lovely things around it? Well, I would say just to say on I May Destroy You for a moment. I mean, I just, too, I felt like that was one of the most revolutionary moments in television that I had ever seen. I think something that it also did really well is look at like the network of friendships around Arabella, um, her friend Kwame and his experiences doing online dating, having a non-consensual sexual encounter, how to name that, how to describe that to himself, how to talk about it with her in the aftermath of what um, she went through, her friend Terry in terms of, of her journeys around dating and sexuality, like that again, these are everyday processes that involve not just one person, but whole networks of people, something we'll talk about when we get to talk to Louise O'Neill on our second episode of our podcast to come. Um, but yeah, that, that point of the mundanity, I suppose, sometimes about the conversations about consent and healing from sexual violence. Um, and the fact that Arabella, the character experiences a second sexual assault through stealthing um, in the series as well, and really examining how a survivor's journey in terms of what may continue to happen or how they may approach sexuality is really complicated and, and, and messy um, and, you know, will take time. I think it's just brilliant. I would also, you know, old school again, Buffy, right? Buffy is a show that certainly is not without its flaws, particularly in terms of, of what we know now about Joss Whedon and his treatment of people on set and the way in which maybe some of the darker energies and tensions being worked out on the show were more of a reflection of the working relationships um, than, than we even thought at the time. But I suppose like what really struck me about Buffy, Buffy as a young woman was the kind of, that, that, that her desire, that her like search for her own desire, expressing her own sexuality was often fraught and like meeting these obstacles in the darkness of both Angel and Spike in different ways. And it felt like the truest representation of what I was living out in the world of anything that I saw. And there was like a strength to, to get from that, right? Um, and of course, Willow and Tara, um, despite the sad demise of Tara. Weren't they so. like, I don't know, were they one of, the, they did have some sort of historical thing where they were like the first lesbian kiss on TV yeah. or something or network television. So absolutely for all its faults with Buffy, the fact that every time she seems to have sex, something bad happens to her. There are a lot of good moments to glean from Buffy. Like the fact that we got our first lesbian kiss. Yeah. Okay, wasn't that Brookside in like, I think that's in, that in the UK though. Oh, that's in the UK. Yeah. yeah so I think yeah. maybe in America, it might've been one of the first, it was kind of a milestone of some uh, form or another, but actually there was kind of an interesting discussion, even though it wasn't about consent with Tara and Willow, when basically Tara and Willow are getting kind of getting into more fights that Willow's using too much magic. And then Willow's or Willow's kind of idea to do this is like, okay, I'm just going to erase Tara's memory of this fight that we had so she's not mad at me. But then Tara finds out and she feels quite violated and she's like, I can't believe you would do that to me. And it's a whole different discussion around consent and violation between two partners that isn't actually um, explicitly sexual, which I thought was quite interesting. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I am not super familiar with Buffy, I have to say, but that could be some 
weekend watching after this maybe we, we shall see um and then we uh, you know on the podcast well, we're going to cover like just so much there's so much to do like you know our, like episode three we're going to be talking about image-based abuse in Ireland considering it will be a year since the law passed but you know I I am a Paris Hilton stan her song stars are blind is just like incredible and has not dated but like which also features in promising young woman it does actually I was it's very happy about that yeah it's, it's, yeah it's fantastic i definitely encourage everyone to go and have a listen to that not that she needs some money from the royalties but off you go um but like you know her experience was like you know th- she had a, a quote sex tape released and you know i'm using quotation marks because she has said that actually she didn't consent to that being released but she kind of became this big pop culture joke and south park did a whole episode about her and they call her stupid spoiled whore and nobody gave her any sympathy they were like you're just rich you just released that for the fame it was called one night in paris and it was i remember being in amsterdam and seeing it for sale in the windows and stuff and it was like huh that's interesting and but she's come out multiple times and said I didn't consent to that and actually that was a violation but we didn't understand what image-based abuse was we were only starting to kind of name it as revenge porn at that stage and then I think when um all the nudes leaked of Jennifer Lawrence and other celebrities and it was called the fappening and Jennifer Lawrence named that as a sex crime I thought that was a really milestone moment to actually name that and people started taking it seriously so we'll definitely discuss that in more detail in episode three but um yeah Alex your thoughts on that just yeah that even reminded me completely of something I'd completely forgotten about is that whenever I was in school in secondary school that was when I don't think it there might have been more but Vanessa Hudgens photos got beat and it was the sort of thing that no one was talking no one was using the words revenge porn or anything like that and yeah, of course we weren't like, it was just us teenagers. She was a Disney star as well. And there's a whole other extra added layer of whenever it's Disney actors and the sort of role that they have to play of good girls and, you know, role models for young girls and hers were linked as well. And like, no one was talking about image-based abuse and no one was taught, we just didn't have the language to talk about this in a nuanced way. I don't think any or any of my friends were talking about it in a way that was sensitive or nuanced because it just, it was just something that you shouldn't have done in the first place. You shouldn't have been taking the photos in the first place. And that was very much the public kind of opinion. But it's only now that we're even getting some slight kind of sensitivity to that as a, as a crime and a real violation. Yeah about time <laughs> absolutely and I know Charlotte we have some active consent uh, resources around this which is fantastic to see but what, what are your other other consent moments that are good or bad or you know from from the wonderful world of pop culture I suppose you know and this is more of a kind of news media conversation but it was a big shaper of my childhood which was the Clinton Lewinsky incident um, in terms of oral sex in the White House and the media discourse that it spurned that came into the kitchens and dining rooms all across the United States and I grew up in quite a far-right sort of family and I suppose the way in which I learned about consent and really oral sex in general first was through the lens of that trial and the things that were being said around me at the time and like shout out to Monica Lewinsky for the work she has done and continues to do throughout her career and coming back to that because it wasn't even just like that one event or the one conversation in the kitchen it was all over Saturday Night Live like it was something you were allowed to make fun of that you know the blue dress and the stain on the blue dress 
and all this, um, you know, shaped a whole cultural landscape. And I know, Alex, one of your favorite films actually it kind of picks up on this moment, doesn't it, with Aubrey Plaza? Oh my God, yes, it does. So even as you were talking about that, I even thought how the name even Monica Lewinsky has become kind of a punchline. Like even Beyonce, it's got, he Monica Lewinsky'd all over my gun. It's like, shouldn't it not have been he Bill Clinton? Like, why did Monica Lewinsky become the punchline? But a really fantastic film. So obviously a super formative thing for me or a huge thing that would have come out would have been super bad. So that was in 2007 and I was like 14 then. And obviously everyone was, it was just bro-y sex comedy. But a couple of years later, uh, just like not even that much later, this great film called The To-Do List came out. It's so underrated. It's even on Netflix at the minute. And it stars Aubrey Plaza. She's a real type A class achiever, class valedictorian, high achiever in the nineties. And it's Clinton era. I don't, I can't remember if it's pre or post Lewinsky but she's basically, she's about to go off to college and she's realized that while she's a straight A student academically, sexually, she's failing. And so she comes up in her type A way with a to-do list of sexual things she wants to do before she goes off to college. And it's really interesting to look at it kind of in contrast to Superbad, which is the same kind of thing of just two young guys just trying to get their bit before they go to college because they'd be losers if they go to college and they don't have these experiences. But she has a really nice conversation with her mom where her mom gives her a little bottle of lube and she's like, sex shouldn't hurt. And it's funny because her dad is a judge and he's quite conservative and the mom is so sexually open and it's really lovely to see. And she's just shamelessly going off, doing all these things, just checking them off a list, being like, yeah, I'm gonna do all these different sex acts. And it's amazing to see while in Superbad, not that many years before, there's this hilarious conversation, remember where they're outside the liquor store and Michael Sarah reveals that he's bringing spermicidal lube and condoms to the party that they're going to because they've been talking all about having sex. So, of course, he's come prepared for sex. And Jonah Hill is like, that's Charles Manson behavior. And he's like, what? You're bringing condoms? That's psycho behavior. And it's just so funny. It plays into this idea. And I think that we really learn, I think, especially with teenagers, is that like if you're prepared for sex, that's lunacy. That means that you meant to have it and there's an intention there. But if you're intending to have sex, obviously that makes you a slutter, that makes you X, Y, and Z, rather than kind of the experience that you see in Superbad is that, oh, you just get drunk and it happens to you. And that's how so many young people have their sexual experiences because it kind of foregoes them of any responsibility in a way of being like, oh, well, it just happened to me. Um, I didn't plan for it. And if I didn't plan for it, that, mean, that means I didn't you know, really want to have it. And I can't, I don't have to deal with the shoulder, the weight of that, if you know what and I mean. And the stigma and the blame, especially Absolutely. for young girls, like that's, oh yeah, really frustrating yeah. stuff. But we will come back to that in um some, we have a podcast lined up as well, talking about Hollywood films um and oh, just how good and bad they are. We're going to go really, really in depth for that one. So this episode is out today and we also have episode two out on the same day because we're going to treat you with a little double drop. And that episode has Louise O'Neill, who wrote Asking For It, and Katrina Daly, who's a playwright who wrote Duck Duck Goose. And we're talking about the perfect victim and victim blaming and, you know, how hard it can be. And if you're in a small town and something happens and you can get blamed. So it's a really, really fascinating um, uh, episode that's really kind of dealing with difficult topics of course but in the meantime while you are waiting for episode three Alex where can people find Active Consent? So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Active Consent and on Facebook we're Active Consent at NUI Galway please come and follow us and there'll be lots of news as well about the hub that we're launching that Charlotte will jump in on 
Yes, Charlotte, a smooth transition over to you. This hub is a collaboration between Active Consent, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Further and Higher Education, Innovation, and Science. You can visit us at www.consenthub.ie to get access to our frequently asked questions, our e-learning module, and other materials, including how to come get trained with us to deliver workshops and to spread the word about Active Consent. Fabulous, because supporting the word by consent is always a good thing. So we will leave you with episode one in your pocket and episode two ready to go, all queued up and ready to go. And we'll see you very, very shortly at the end of February for episode three. If the meantime, if you really feel like treating us, we would appreciate if you wanted to rate and review over on Apple and Spotify. And we will see you over on our social media and enjoy. See you later. Bye.